Good morning, everybody. I know a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the word kingdom, how we use that word rather than kingdom in our church. And I just wanted to say that if you did miss that one, that one might be a helpful one to catch up with online, just as a background for the next few sermons. So Ken's on vacation um, for the next couple of weeks, and I, I've got a little bit of a nugget here for what I'd like to do. Um, and so this morning, we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God in relationship to empire. And then I think next week, we're going to hit on what the scriptures say about apocalypse and how that's related. And then we'll talk about what it means to find unity through justice using the communion ritual um, the week after that. So all of that kingdom will be the background. And my hope in doing this is that it'll give us some kind of a framework for helping us to make meaning about what's happening around us and what it means to follow Jesus as sort of the, the political temperature is pretty intense right now. So I want, I want to start by saying we, we can't talk about Jesus and his movement without talking about the Roman Empire. And so I want to start by asking you this. Um, I told you earlier I was going to ask you a question to start the sermon. And so if you'd like to use the, the chat function to... Um, Oh, sorry. I think my chat, I was just sending my chat to other people, to attendees. Thank you, Cassie. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you guys a question to start off. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to list off a bunch of titles. And if you want to use the chat function to all panelists and attendees, like just take a guess at who I'm talking about. Right. Divine one. Son of God. God. God from God, Christ, Lord, Lord of Lords, Redeemer, Emmanuel, Liberator, the Savior of the world, the one who established peace on earth. I'm going to put all of those in there. I see all these Jesus, 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 and you're not wrong, right? Rachel Johnson, Jesus. Anybody else? Don't worry if you're on. Oh, 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 hey, we got, we got one <laughs> different one, Caesar. Oh, we read some of the same books. <laughs> it is true. If you, if you ask a Westerner today, it is true. Jesus is the answer, right? Jesus is not an incorrect answer. Um, but if you had asked anybody in first century Palestine when Jesus lived, the answer would have been Caesar, Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman emperor. Right, so all of these titles were actually Roman titles that early Christians borrowed and applied to Jesus. Right, so when Christians gave Jesus these names, they were effectively saying that Jesus is greater than Caesar. Right, so Caesar's title was Lord. Here, let me put the, the Greek now that I'm actually typing to everyone. Kyrios in Greek. And there can only be one Lord, capital L. So Caesar was Lord. And so when Christians started to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, they were saying Jesus is Lord and, by implication, that Caesar is not. And so making the claim that Jesus is Lord, Emmanuel, Savior, Redeemer, God of God, Son of God, all of those, making the claim that Jesus has those titles was what the Romans called I'm going to put this in. Mahestas. It's what we call high treason. And it's why some of the early Christians were often jailed and beaten or put to death by the Roman Empire. 
It's why they were sent to be eaten by animals in the Roman Colosseum or at the Circus Maximus. It's because they refused to bow to the Roman gods or to call Caesar Lord. And so the early Christians made a really strong distinction between the empire of Rome and the empire of God or the kingdom of God. And that's the same word that is used in the Greek, the kingdom of God or empire of God. Because this kingdom of God was meant to be a counter way of living to that of the way of Rome. Right? Just like the kingdom of God today is meant to be a counter way of living to the way of the American empire today. So the last time we spoke, I talked a little bit about how power is wielded and how it's maintained. Right? And we talked about how empires use various sources of power, and that's military, power, economic, political, and ideological. And it was the ideological part that we touched on, and we talked about how often one of the unseen ways that power works is through language and images and myths and ideas. And we talked about how it's why minority people groups care so much about like what words are used to describe them and what images people see of them in the news and in movies and on TV. It's why I care deeply how lesbians are presented on TV because words and images shape the collective beliefs and behavior, right? That's part of how social power is maintained. And so Rome used words and images to its great advantage throughout its reach. Um, well, they were all throughout the Mediterranean. There's an Irish Catholic theologian who I really enjoy named John Dominic Crossan. He's a good historian as well. And he writes about how pervasive and repetitive were the words and the phrases and the images that Rome used to talk about itself, right? That Rome had this clear message about itself. You might say it was like a great marketing strategy. And that message was this. I'm going to copy and paste it and know that my Latin pronunciation comes from years of choir singing, so I think I can say it. <laughs> Victorium pace parta terra marice. Victory with peace secured on land and sea. Or, similarly, terra marice parta victoris pax. Peace secured by victories on land and sea. Right, so in other words, it was peace through victory, as I type it. Peace through war, peace through military might. Right? So war was viewed as a, a productive force through which they secured peace. Right? And Jesus lived during the time of the Pax Romana, right in the height of that. I'm going to type that in there. You probably studied that at school at some point in your life, right? This great peace of Rome was a vision of peace for a large territory of land that made up the Roman Empire. And that Pax Romana was maintained through military victory and might, and everybody knew that. So when Jesus and his followers pushed back against the Roman Empire, they were presenting a different path for achieving peace. Right? So instead of peace through victory, they were presenting peace through justice. I'm going to repeat that. Instead of peace through victory, they presented peace through justice. And we're going to unpack this a little bit, first by looking at what Jesus said about this kingdom of God. And we're going to start with a passage from the Sermon on the Mount that I'm sure all of you have heard at some point, even if you don't come from a Christian background. And so I'm going to read that. I might have to put it in little parts. 
so that I can get it all in. So give me one second here. We'll start with that part. Matthew 5, 3 to 10. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, are the, theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I want you to note there, the words for righteousness and justice are the same word in both Hebrew and Greek. Right? So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then further down, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Jesus speaking, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you might be children of your father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So we see Jesus here. Like this is his, his seminal sermon that has lived on, right? This kingdom is for the poor in spirit. It's for those persecuted for seeking to do justice. It's for people who hunger and thirst for this justice. It's for people who show mercy. It's a kingdom that calls us to love our enemies. This isn't a kingdom for the arrogant. It's not a kingdom for those who think that justice and mercy are for losers, who believe that crushing enemies is the godly path. We're saying, no, this kingdom is not like that. And then in parables, Jesus describes this kingdom. He talks about it being like yeast, making its way through bread. I don't know if you guys have ever... This is an aside, not even in my notes here. If you guys, Rachel's been making a lot of bread over the last few months, and if you've tried to work yeast through bread, it's hard. It takes some real, it takes some real patience and some muscle. Jesus describes the kingdom of God like that, and like a mustard seed that grows into a big tree. But yeast and mustard seeds, these are not working through like war and domination. Like they're just small, and they're humble, and they're vulnerable, and they grow slowly. And Jesus said, this kingdom is like that. It's not like Rome's victory through war. And Jesus showed us what this kingdom looks like. Right? He went around and he, he preached peace and he, he enacted justice. He healed the sick. He took people who were considered impure or outcasts and he restored them to the full life of community. And he championed the oppressed and he called them his friends. One of the, the verses that stuck out to me when I was in high school and I would read the Bible was it said that he was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton by the religious elites because he was partying with the marginalized. I was like, this is a Jesus I can follow. <laughs> he likes to have fun and he hangs out with some of the people that others won't include. But he also included the powerful in his kingdom. And he, he included number of people who are part of the uh, party of the Pharisees. 
We know later on from the book of Acts that there was like a whole party of the Pharisees that followed Jesus. And we know that Jesus healed the servant of a Roman military officer. Like that might be one of the last people I would think of him extending God's kingdom and justice to. And I think that theologians rightly point out now that the servant of this Roman centurion was probably the officer's lover, right? Because of high-ranking uh, military officers in Rome, they often had um, a more sexual relationship with their servants. So everything about Jesus was threatening to his social order, right? He wasn't making anybody comfortable. And he got so threatening that he lost his life. And he died without drawing a sword, without calling on his followers to do that. And in fact, he told Peter to put down his sword. So I think that in Jesus, we see this consistent ethic of nonviolence and non-domination. And I say that with, with a little caveat in that we know that there are Christians who find some violence acceptable, right? In cases of self-defense, in cases of throwing off an oppressor, which I think is self-defense in a larger sense. Um, think about the military as like withholding the tide of evil in the world, and all of that is legitimate. I preached on the various Christian approaches to violence um, and war back in January, so if that's helpful to you, that is still on our website. I think that's a place where there can be pretty sincere disagreement, right, between pacifism and these like sort of very limited and specific forms of violence to sort of maintain or restrain evil. But I say all that also knowing that it was almost unanimously agreed that pacifism was the posture of the earliest Christians for almost 300 years after Jesus's death and resurrection. Right, so the Jewish followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, when Rome came in and destroyed the city in, AD, or in uh, 70 CE, they fled to the mountains rather than fight because that's how they interpreted Jesus as telling, as instructing them to flee to the mountains rather than fight. And so often as, or so far as we know with the written evidence that we have, Christians systematically opted out of serving in the Roman military. And it wasn't actually until the point where the Roman Empire adopted Christianity as its official religion that the church started to make more space for serving as a soldier when Christianity started to mingle with the power of empire. And so while we might have a little more like nuanced approach to violence. Um, I think we have to adopt to changing technologies. Like there's a lot of different thought there, but I think there is no getting around that nonviolence is like the ideal in Jesus's kingdom, even if the ideal isn't always achievable, right? So the kingdom of God in its core, I read it as nonviolent and inclusive. And all of this is echoed by the apostle Paul, right? He also, he calls for us not to seek revenge on others, he calls for us to feed our enemies. And he further unpacks this equality. I know I'm getting into a lot of scripture. This is a little bit of a thicker sermon, but I think it's important right now. So in Galatians 3, Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And we have to understand, it would have been shocking for people to see a slave like Philemon, some people call him Philemon, sitting down beside Paul, a male Roman citizen, sitting down beside Lydia, who was a rich businesswoman, to eat together at the same table and worship. 
And so Paul is calling us to lay down our privilege for the sake of witnessing to this way of life where there are no second-class citizens at the table of God. And when Paul describes Jesus, he says this. This was in the reading this morning that um, Mary did so well for us here from Philippians 2. He describes Jesus, he says, being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Oh, I put my own notes down there. Talking about how Jesus emptied himself of his privilege is what I would say. And so this way of living, of emptying himself of his privilege and enacting justice nonviolently and inclusively, that got him killed. Right? And then I say God overturned our death sentence, justifying Jesus's life. I think humans killed Jesus and God overturned our death sentence. And then Paul goes on to say, he says this, Whatever were gains to me now, I consider them loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I kind of love that line. I consider them garbage. Because I read gains there as privilege. Whatever my privilege, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. And so the way that I relate this is I think it's my call to lay down my white privilege as best I'm able for the sake of Christ. Right? And I have to continue to learn more how to do this for the sake of Christ. Because sometimes I'm blind and I need help seeing because we swim in this cultural sea that is racism. And so I use my privilege as an American citizen to advocate for those who are undocumented. And because my allegiance is to Jesus, not to empire. My allegiance is to Jesus, not to America. Right? The hierarchies of the American social order are garbage that I might gain Christ. Right? The power of this kingdom of God is found in the laying down of power. And when religion seeks power, when religion tries to use empire to further its gains, it becomes counter-Jesus, right? There's no political party that embodies the kingdom of God, right? So we do our best to discern whose policies better embody this kingdom. There's no political party that embodies it fully, right? We are to be loyal to Jesus so that we can critique empire no matter who is in charge. You know, that we are to be loyal to Jesus so we can critique empire no matter who's in charge. I know most of you know that I, I lean left. I don't make a big uh, secret of that. But like, for all that I enjoyed about Obama, I was critical of him for his use of unmanned drone assassinations. Right? We have to maintain our loyalty to Jesus first. But I will say this, in this particular election, usually I don't care how people vote. I usually do not until the last one. There, there's something very particular that's going on here where we have a political party that it's wed itself to a certain brand of white Christianity and the potency is outright dangerous for the poor and for the oppressed. 
And I think that we need to be warned that the white American church is playing with fire. I didn't know this when I wrote my sermon, but I saw, um, I don't know if you guys know who Rick Joyner is. He was like a soup. He is still a super fundamentalist Christian leader. His daughter is friends with me and she is progressive. And so she was writing about how today there are tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. I don't know. Franklin Graham has them marching on Washington to pray for America, which is fine by all means pray, but also praying to seek more power through the state authority. And that to me is a big red flag. I think when Jesus people seek power, we're playing the wrong game. Because all of the church's most shameful moments in history arise when that mixture of state power is mixed with religious fervor. And so I don't usually do it, but I'm going to give you another example um, of how this is manifesting, this like unholy alliance right now. And this happened at the Republican National Convention where Vice President Mike Pence, who's a confessed Christian, I would say he toyed with blasphemy, and I do not say that lightly. There were even conservative Christian outlets that were a little shocked by how blatant it was. This is, um, I'm going to copy and paste what, this is the Christian Broadcast Network, which is as conservative as it comes. This is how they reported it. At the end of his speech, the vice president alluded to Hebrews 12, 1 to 2, in which the author calls on believers, this is Paul, probably, well, whoever wrote Hebrews, it says, run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It's a very famous verse. And 2 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul writes, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there's freedom. Pence, however, substituted the flag for Jesus, calling on Americans to support a second Trump term by saying, let's run the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on old glory and all she represents. Let's fix our eyes on this land of heroes and let their courage inspire. And let's fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and our freedom. And never forget where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, which means freedom always wins. And I thought, man, as followers of Jesus, we are not to be a people of empire. We are a people of counter empire. We are not a people who pledge allegiance to a flag. I actually, I haven't said the Pledge of Allegiance actually for like 30 years. We don't pledge allegiance to a flag. We don't fix our eyes on symbols of empire. We're a people whose loyalty is to be moved and pledged to Jesus alone, who's the Prince of Peace, and we fix our eyes on him. He cannot be substituted for symbols of empire. And I think right now we need the people of God speaking prophetically to empire on all political arenas. There's certainly places in the left-leaning as well and then meditating on how Jesus described this kingdom to help us um, discern and be most effective witnesses of what this kingdom is in this time. So what I'd like to do for this meditation is I'm just gonna put back um, called the Beatitudes, those lines that I read from Matthew where Jesus talked about blessed are the poor in spirit. I want us to just kind of get ourselves situated. Close your eyes if it's helpful to you or you'd like. And I'm just going to read those again kind of slowly. And we're just going to let these sink into us right now. Spirit, I even ask that you just speak to us through these words of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, 
for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen and amen.